We continue our discussion on the Islamic history of uh, Iran. Uh, last week in particular, the focus was on the Battle of Nahawand, and a very important and significant battle in which uh, Islam was brought to this part of the world. Continue that discussion, and uh, we have Mulana Yusuf Bemath with us. Mulana, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa How are you this afternoon, Mulana? Alhamdulillah, we're doing very well. Very well, alhamdulillah. Uh, yes, Mulana, uh, you can continue. Jazakallah khairan, Mufti Sahib. Dear listeners, we have been discussing the country of Iran and how Islam has arrived there and how during the Khilaf of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Islam was brought to that region. We spoke about initially how Islam reached firstly Iraq, which is obviously closer geographically to the uh, Arabian Peninsula. And thereafter, over the Zagros Mountains, how Islam was brought to what is today Iran. So for ease of understanding for myself, we've just divided the history into four different stages. The first, which we can call possibly the Golden Era, and the spread of Islam to the then-known Empire of Persia which is what we basically discussed up till today. And that was from the advent of Islam till around the year 645 common era, which is the end of Umar Khilafah. The second stage is a period of approximately eight to 900 years. This would cover and span the uh, dynasties of the Umayyads, the Abbasids through to the Timurid and other dynasties, their rule of Iran where Islam really gets entrenched into Persian culture until it becomes inseparable. It is a great period of ilm across, across the spectrum of sciences, but it's also a very dark period, as you may call it, of politics, of internal struggle, of infighting, you know, on and off during these few centuries. There were obviously and definitely very great periods in between these, but... Uh, overall, this period in Iran, as we know it today, hasn't been the greatest in terms of our history. The third stage we would, be, would be from the year 1500, and that is when the Safavids had come in. They were a Shi'i regime or Shi'i dynasty, and they began, as we will discuss, the, what we can maybe possibly, for lack of a better term, the Shi'ification of, of Iran as we know it today. And uh, the last and the final stage would be the last century up till uh, modern Iran and Iran as we, as, we, as we know Iran today. So we've discussed the first stage, which is the golden era. And today, inshallah ta'ala, we will be continuing our discussion and we'll begin the second stage, which is from the Umayyad and the, Uba- and the Abbasid dynasty era. So last week we discussed how Islam had spread to all of Persia and the ancient empire, how it was brought to its knees, and it was replaced with one which, is, is, according to us, was much better. People at the time were drawn to the beauty of Islam, and as time passed by, the majority of the people gradually accepted Islam. And the fact that it took about a century or two for the people to accept Islam is testimony that Islam was in no way forced upon the people contrary to what others may claim. So the movement to Islam was slow, but it was steady as well. The nobility and the city dwellers, they were the first to revert. Uh, Islam spread more slowly among the peasantry or the Dehkans, as they were called in, in, in Persian. 
the peasants or the villagers. Um, there is a particular professor of history at the Columbia University in New York by the name of Richard Bulliet, and he suggests regarding the, uh, the, the Persians' accept, acceptance of Islam, and he says that the, the acceptance was gradual and limited um, right down to the end of the Umayyad period, which is around 750. And thereafter, it was followed by a rapid increase in the number of reversions after the Abbasid revolution, so that by the time when regional dynasties had been established in the East, at least 80% of more of the Iranians had become Muslim. And then following the Abbasid revolution, uh, in which the Iranian reverts played a major role, the Khilafah center of gravity moved from Iraq, Mesopotamia, and underwent significant Iranian influences. And accordingly, the Muslim population of Iran rose from uh, about uh, 80% or initially prior to that 40% in the mid-9th century to, a, to close to about 100% by the end of the 11th. So that's what he has to say regarding the acceptance of Islam of the Iranians. So looking historically again, Umar radiallahu anhu, after him, Uthman radiallahu anhu came and the status quo stayed relatively the same for Iranians and the acceptance of Islam. And then during the Khilafah of Ali radiallahu anhu, the capital of, of the Muslim empire was moved to Kufa, basically the neighbor of Iran. So much activity was witnessed in the former Persian empire. During the Umayyad reign, uh, their capital was moved to Damascus and Muslims had prospered and more, land, more lands came under the banner of Islam. It was obviously a very positive time for Muslims, and Islam was taken far and wide. Um, at its greatest extent, the Umayyad Khilafah had covered 11 million kilo, square kilometers, and there were about 33 million people residing within the Umayyad Khilafah, making it one of the largest empires in history, both in area and in proportion to the world's population. So that was during the Umayyad, uh, in Umayyad time. So as the capital had moved to Damascus far from uh, Iran and uh, Persia, there wasn't much happening. So as new nations were accepting Islam, there were political issues that arose that led to serious infighting and led to people tarnishing the, na the name of the Umayyads. Uh, the Umayyads themselves were obviously not ma'asum, they were not infallible, but much has been fabricated regarding them thereafter. Uh, nevertheless, Iran saw little action during this early period of the Umayyads, and neighboring Iraq had many issues, from Karbala to uprisings to many other incidents. The Persians now in Iran during the Umayyad dynasty, particularly during that first century of Hijrah, they, they were always a more sophisticated, had a more sophisticated culture, and they had been defeated by very simple Arabs as they regarded them, and who these Arabs had now become their masters, and there was no chance to regain their lost glory. And there is a particular Iranian historian by the name of Hussein Kazim Zadeh, and he's written about this, and he mentions that from the very day that Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas anhu took Iran under his control, the Persians nurtured the feeling of hatred and vengeance in their hearts. And these deep-rooted sentiments were expressed occasionally, but were mostly dormant. 
And when the Shiite beliefs were formulated, this is, the, I'm quoting the, the, the words of this uh, Iranian historian. He says, when the Shiite beliefs were formulated, these sentiments came to surface. Scholars are fully aware that a political aspect was also involved, meaning that the religion at its, at its roots was politically motivated. But looking at the history again, towards the end of the Umayyad Khilafah, um, a man arose from Khurasan who exploited these particular feelings of the Persians as well as other racial dif- differences, and he led a rebellion that the Umayyads couldn't quell. And he hailed from Khurasan, as we mentioned, an area uh, which is part of Iran today. And before, just a note on Khurasan before we actually continue, continue discussing this uprising, Khurasan is an area often mentioned and we hear it quite often. And uh, to understand it a bit more clearly, Muftirawal Haq, Dama Barakat, whom explains that there is Khurasan Sagheer and Khurasan Kabir, the small or the, uh, the, the lesser Khurasan and the greater Khurasan. So Khurasan Sagheer is much of modern-day Iran, including Nishapur or Nesabur and Qum as well. And Khurasan Kabir includes this, but also Western and Northern Afghanistan, along with Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. So Muftisab explains that Khur means sun and Stan means place. So the meaning of Khurasan is a place of heat. And this is in contrast with the region north of this, Russia and China, where the climate is much colder and there is less sun. And he also mentions, just for interest sake, that Kabul, there is a difference of opinion whether this is from Khurasan or whether it's part of Sijistan. So coming back to what we were mentioning regarding this rebellion and uprising from Khurasan, this particular man, his name was Abu Muslim al-Khurasani. And in the 9th and 10th centuries, there were a number of non-Arab subjects of the Ummah, especially Persians, and they created this movement called the Shurubiya movement <clears throat> in response to the privileged status of the Arabs, as there were racial differences between the Arabs and non-Arabs at the time. And this movement led to a resurgence of Persian national identity. And although the Persians had adopted Islam over the centuries, they had worked to protect and revive their own distinct language and culture. And the person who now led the rebellion and who paved the way for the ascendancy of the Abbasids was, as I mentioned, Abu Muslim al-Khurasani, and he had hailed from Isfahan, which is one of the major cities in Iran today. So during the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, I would suffice, it would suffice to say that this period, politically speaking, in Iran and in Iraq, there was much upheaval based on tribalism, clans, races, and different ideologies. And I won't delve very much into that history. Um, I would prefer to focus on this particular era being a great period of, of ilm and of learning. The 9th century is known by some as the golden scientific century for Islamic knowledge. And this century and the three that succeeded it marked an era of scientific, religious, philosophical, and cultural development, the scale and depth of which had never been seen in the world in world history before or since. And just a lesson for us that we can learn from this, uh, which is quite pertinent, is that politics and instability will continue, but that shouldn't deter us from continuing 
our path of ilm and of da'wah. So this period of ilm, and there are a number of different scholars, we'll maybe briefly mention some of their lives and some of the history and how they link to Iran. And today we can focus uh, very briefly and maybe on one, one or two scholars in terms of hadith. So there was one particular scholar, his name was Muhammad bin Ismail bin Ibrahim ibn Mughira ibn Bardizba. And he was of Persian origin. He was born in the blessed city of Bukhara, uh, which at the time hadn't produced any widespread known scholars. But all of that changed after the scholar and uh, he had not just changed his hometown, but he had changed the entire Muslim world. And this scholar, Muhammad, of Persian origin, is better known as Imam al-Bukhari, rahmatullahi ta'ala alayhi. And it was only after Imam Bukhari became this famous scholar that Bukhara as a city blossomed into a garden of ilm. <coughs> Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi around the year 865 common era, went to Naysabur, which is in present-day Iran, for a period of five years. Now, Naysabur or Nishapur, it lay on the great caravan route going eastwards from Baghdad to the frontier town of Jakartis on the borders of China. So it was a, a major city on the trade route, a very wealthy city, which was also a seat of learning. And Imam Bukhari went to Naysabur, and this is where he would actually attract thousands of students including one of the most famous scholars of hadith, Imam Muslim ibn al-Hajjaj. And um, the scholars in Naishabur, they were upset that their students were flocking to Imam Bukhari, and therefore, for whatever reason, rumors were spread regarding him that he had come to Naishabur in order to spread false information about the religion. And these rumors eventually grew until it caused Imam Bukhari to leave Naysabur and return to his home city of Bukhara. But he had come to Naysabur, a city in what is present-day Iran, and that is what we are focusing on the country of Naysabur. One other scholar before we end off today, um, Imam Muslim, uh, his name was Abu Hussein Muslim ibn al-Hajjaj, and he was al-Qushayri al-Naysaburi. Uh, he was a Naysaburi by birth. He was born in Naysabur, Nishapur, in the year 821 Common Era. At the time, it was a province of Khurasan uh, ruled by the Abbasids, and he belonged to a noble Arab tribe called the Qushayr. Uh, he started learning hadith under the scholars in his town of Naysabur, and then at a very early age, he began his long ilmi journeys, where he, at the age of 14, he traveled to Basra and then to Hijaz, where he studied further, and thereafter he returned to his home city of Nishapur, and it was eventually in this very same city of Nishapur that he was buried in the year 261 after Hijri. So these are just but two scholars, and inshallah ta'ala we will continue next week mentioning uh, some of the other scholars of Hadith, and then other scholars in an array of different academic sciences, or many of them hailed from what is today Iran, uh, and modern-day Iran as we know it, all from this region of Khurasan, uh, as we've just understood. So, inshallah ta'ala, we'll end off on this discussion for today, and we hope to continue, inshallah ta'ala, next week. really appreciate, and, uh, you know, many may not have realized uh, the importance in terms of the scholars that have come from this part of the world, and we look forward to the discussion going further. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
that as Mawlana Yusuf Behmat speaking to us about the scholars of uh, Iran and also you know the different aspects of the stages of Islamic history in Iran.